Knock three times if you love me. <laughs> Welcome back. It's episode 151 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast, coming to you as we always do from the faculty lounge of the Epstein and New School of Law, which is decked out for the holidays. Richard has even made his gingerbread Justinian code, sticks to the ribs. I'm your host, Troy Senek, former White House speechwriter, co-founder of Kite and Key Media, and executive director of the North Pole Right to Work Foundation. And I am joined, as always, by the Donner and Blitzen of the conservative legal movement. They are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and senior lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. And fellas, I am curious, curious about what's happened since last we spoke, because when we recorded the last show, we were just days away from the two of you jetting off to Milan for what was supposedly an academic conference. Um, I want to know what the Epstein and you roadshow is like. More specifically, I want the audience to know because I had a source in Milan. I was receiving texts about this and it sounded insane to me. John, what can you disclose? Well, first, <laughs> I'm disappointed that you didn't ask me about my Christmas plans and about Festivus. Because I want to, I'm, I'm waiting for us to engage in the airing of grievances and then the feats of strength. Every episode, John, <laughs> is the airing of grievances. Every episode. Well, my memory of Milan, uh, you know, was Richard asking, why was all the food Italian? <laughs> hey, you know, Richard, uh, Richard, you know, is, uh, he wanted to have some Chinese food in there sometimes, a little Mexican food. What? You wonder why he was always getting also buco and risotto and all these great Italian dishes. All of it was wasted on him. A total slander. That's okay. I mean, traveling with Richard, though, is I realize you guys probably flew separately, but it is one of life's great pleasures. Richard, do you remember, this was years ago, we did an episode of the show. Actually, I take that back. We were supposed to do an episode of the show. It, it never got recorded, so this got lost to history. But we did a we did a FedSoc event in San Francisco, and you and I drove back together to Palo Alto. I remember that. Do you remember this? Okay, yes. so what, what I remember, I tell this story to people who ask about you all the time. You probably don't remember it. I we certainly talked, don't. We talked about a lot of things on the way back. Um, which was about a, probably an hour's drive. And you asked me about the uh, young lady that I was dating at the time. And I said to you, well, Richard, I think it works pretty well. We're, we're different in a lot of ways, but I, you know, I think it's complimentary. And you said, you know what? That's exactly the way that a relationship has to be. You can't be too similar. Do you know why? And then you paused and you pronounced, otherwise, no gains from trade. That's the Becca view of marriage. <laughs> I agree with that. No, actually, what's very, wrong with it's, that? It's, it's an extreme. There's not. You know what it is? I'll tell you what's wrong with it. Uh, it's a very good way to describe relationships from the external point of view. But if people use that to describe the way in which they're in their own relationships, you start to think it very bizarre. And I was trying to give the sort of the global view rather than talking about the other side of this. Uh, but. What happens is if you have a marriage in which the skills are exactly identical and there are nothing that the one can do that the other can't do, uh, you don't double your output when you join together, so it's less likely to stay. A marriage has always been a mixture of sentimental and affections on the one side and real-world production on the other, and if the latter goes below a certain point, the former can't think to keep together. Um, if you wanted to go a little bit further, uh, Troy, we could talk about the logic of polygamy in earlier times, which would give it a lot more sauce. Um, <laughs> uh, because really it turns get, out then it, we need to get Mrs. Epstein on here to defend herself. Well, I mean, she beat up my second wife. What am I supposed to say? <laughs> <laughs> All right, fellas. Well, uh, you know, the irony of that is that it would not be the first time we've touched polygamy on this show. Um, it's along with riparian Roman rights. Or Roman <laughs> so Roman. we're not going to start there this episode, because I think obviously we have to start with the the Mississippi abortion case. Um, let, let me start with this. The, the media reaction to oral arguments was, I thought, fascinating because 
a lot of outlets basically acting as if it was a foregone conclusion that Roe is on its way out based on the way that the oral arguments went. John, I'll start with you. Are you that confident? Before oral argument, I would have thought that the court would figure out some way to keep Roe, but to give states more authority over reg- uh, abortion. And if you listen to the oral arguments, Chief Justice Roberts tried to find that kind of conclu- uh, compromise. But after oral arguments, I think Roe's uh, going to be overturned. And the reason why is because the fifth vote, I think, in all this is going to be Brett Kavanaugh. And if it's Brett Kavanaugh, uh, who's not really a, you know, a strong originalist the way I think the other four um, Bush Trump justices are, then Kavanaugh would have been, I thought, motivated more by uh, the same things that would motivate Chief Justice Roberts, like stare decisis, uh, you know, keeping to Roe because it's in the past and it's been followed for so long and everyone has expectation interests in it and so on. But Kavanaugh's, I think, most noteworthy a contribution to oral argument was to go through a list of all the important cases that the Supreme Court was right to have overturned, like Plessy versus Ferguson. I wish that they overturned Dred Scott, uh, overturned the case before Miranda, and on and on. And he gave a you know, pretty strong, I mean, it wasn't really a question. I think it was kind of a, it was more of a statement about uh, why on important issues the Supreme mm. Court really ought not to be bound by star decisis, ought not to you know, bend the knee to the past, but to try to get the decision right. And then the other thing he said was, isn't the Constitution uh, neutral on abortion? Which I think is correct. I don't think the Constitution actually has a view on abortion and sends it back to the, you know, it's an issue for the states. And so he, if that's right, then Kavanaugh sounds like he's a fifth vote to overturn Roe. So that way I think was very surprising. I, I'm surprised. I, I, what surprises me is that more people haven't really focused on Kavanaugh. Was the other thing I thought also looks. Uh, I sorry. I imply from argument was I was surprised how much the um, lib three liberals were really not trying to find any compromise. They didn't take up Chief Justice Roberts's idea that, that maybe 15 weeks into a pregnancy, a state could start to regulate abortion. The, the, mm-hmm. the liberal justices were just making their pleas on stare decisis. They didn't even defend Roe on the merits, as far as I could tell. Uh, it seemed to me that they've already, ex- the three liberals uh, already accept that Roe is going to be overturned. Well, I think they actually contributed to overturning it. Um, uh, it's one thing to sort of defend a particular decision on the grounds that it's been around for a long time and it's very difficult to change. Reliance issues in this particular case are very tricky because uh, the reliance interest extends to people who have abortions and nobody's going to punish them. But going forward, it's a relatively clean break. It's not like overturning the statutes that put into place the National Labor Relations Act or the Fair Labor Standards Act, where entire long-term contracts and arrangements have been put into place. Uh, but what I thought that the uh, three liberals, particular Justice Sotomayor did, was beyond the grounds of fair play. What she did is she made it very, very personal. And she wondered whether or not anybody could survive the scandal that's created by the changes in the justices on the Supreme Court. Um, I think if you're trying to uh, win over for the compromise. The last thing you want to do is to take uh, six of your colleagues and accuse them in varying degrees of bad faith in the way in which they decide their decision. Particularly since it's become her one, uh, she doesn't actually make any arguments on the other side. Uh, the other point, I think, is you're right, John, that they didn't go after the compromises. But the question is, what was uh, Justice Roberts thinking or smoking? Um, uh, the line that he took was he said that viability may be not an essential part to the earlier decision. And yet, if you start looking at the trimester decision, uh, which that case embodies, it was quite clearly very, very central. And viability is probably a bit earlier now than it was in 1973. But the thought that that was just dicta, I don't think can stick to everybody. And it's not a very clever idea to try and stop um, and overturning of a statute by making false claims about what the previous decision said. I do think it's possible, and, and I'm not so sure one would want to stop this, uh, to say, okay, the line is now 15 weeks rather than 24 or 25, and the world will not come to the end. I think one of the features, though, we have to remember is in this particular case, I think John is right to say that what they did is they didn't argue the moral case against abortion. They said this is a matter that really ought to be left to the states. Well, some of these states, 
like New York, California, I think a bunch of others, have already passed statutes to the effect that says if Roe is overturned, it is now law by statute, uh, shortcutting this. Uh, but to give an idea of the sort of the red-blue split in the United States, there are probably 25 states with a small fraction of the population, which will go exactly the opposite way and try to do what Mississippi does, which is to return to the pre-Roe standards in which abortion is presumptively illegal, and then you carve out exceptions for the defense of the life of the mother, uh, maybe cases of incest and rape, and probably cases of very serious birth defects, um, and then leave it at that as opposed to having four-cause abortion. My own prediction is I do think it's going to be 6-3, and I think the reason is it's one of the worst opinions ever written in terms of its analytical stuff. I wrote about this, I'm sorry to say, back in 1973, and you read the opinion, it's just completely baffling. Uh, there were two views on it. I said it falls within the scope of the police power. Uh, John Ely wrote a much more influential article at the time talking about institutional competence, saying courts ought not to do that stuff. And I think in the end, my views on the moral issues won't matter very much. But my guess is that the Ely view on the wages of crying wolf, as he called it, are probably going to carry the day. And I would suspect that this thing is going to be overturned. Then we have to see what else is going to go. And perhaps Chevron's going to be next. John, Richard mentioned that sort of aggressive posture that Justice Sotomayor took. This this is the quote. This is the rhetorical question that she raised during oral arguments. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? I don't see how it's possible. How will we survive? How will the court survive? Okay, here's my question here. Her breathlessness and overstatement aside, there's a there's a little germ of truth there insofar as if the justices overturn Roe, there will be a contingent of people who regard it as pure politics, regardless of the justice's actual rationale, if for no other reason than a Supreme Court justice has just kind of encouraged them to. Now, of course, that's not unique to the conservative justice, justices or to the abortion issue. So here's my question to you. On this case or any other of similar consequence, should it matter? To to what degree, if any, should Supreme Court justices factor in the likely public reaction to their decisions? I don't think it should matter at all, but they are human beings, and some of them clearly do so. All you have to do to find a good example of this on the issue of abortion is read the last precedent, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, where uh, three Republican-appointed justices, Kennedy, O'Connor, and Souter, wrote this very strange uh, opinion on their own. And in that opinion, they said, even if Roe were wrong, we will still stick with it because of the political pressure that's been placed on the court to overturn it. And the problem with that is that that's going to be true no matter, as you suggested, Troy, anytime the court decides to uphold or overturn any controversial decision from the past, because if they overturn Roe. It looks political. Why isn't it equally political if they uphold Roe based on the pressure, political pressure on the court? Both sides are right flinging pressure at the court right now. And so whichever way they go, it's going to look political. It's going to have, of course, political consequences. That's why it seems to me, why isn't the right answer? Uh, let the court just decide what the justices think is the correct constitutional answer to the question of whether the 14th Amendment protects a woman's right to abortion and let the politics take care of themselves in the political branches in the states. And here's the second thing I just, even if you were concerned about the political ramifications of a decision or not, God, the last people in the American governmental system who would be any good at figuring out the politics are the justices <laughs> of the Supreme Court. What do they know? They're all like two-bit politicians compared to you know, the president <laughs> the or pros, the leaders yeah. of the Senate. Or how, right? I, I mean, if it's about politics and how to, you know, moderate decisions and, do, you know, do one thing or other, I would trust Chuck Schumer or Mitch McConnell far more than Chief Justice John Roberts or Sonia Sotomayor about how to manage the politics of something. And that's by constitutional design. That's why it seems to me abortion and most controversial issues are left to the political process. 
Well, see, I disagree in half with John. That is, I think, in effect, that even if you took a fairly aggressive view on judicial review, as I, as a libertarian, often do, uh, this still falls pretty much within the scope of the standard police power definitions narrowly construed. Uh, So one of the reasons why I think it ought to be overturned is that I think the case is actually wrong in terms of the way in which it evaluates abortion, the way in which you sort of want to put the question quite simply um, is this. Do you really think that an abortion is like having a haircut? And that it's simply a part of a woman's body the same way the hair is a part of everybody. Or put the question in another way. Suppose it turns out that the fetus is attacked, not by its own mother, but by some third party. Are you going to say that there's only an offense against the mother and not against the protectural offspring? I don't think one would want to do that. And I think anybody who actually thought about it would say attacking a woman in her belly when she's pregnant is a particularly ugly type of situation. And so the moral status of the fetus is only questionable if it turns out that the mother's doing it, but it's the same status whether she's doing it or somebody else. And then somebody will say, some of the libertarians like Muriel Rothbard, well, the fetus is an invader. Uh, Not really. I think the real question is, it's a child, and generally speaking, you owe as a parent fiduciary duties to your child to tender them reasonable care, and you can't kind of treat this as though it's a stranger. Uh, So if you actually want to engage in the moral dialogue, I think it actually comes out better. And the really hard question, uh, to me in many cases, is you really want the legislature to say it's just perfectly okay, given all of these complications, uh, to have a rule which says that abortion is simply a choice for the woman to have. I'm not going to say that's wrong politically, because it may well be correct, but I think the really important debate on this subject, and one on which I think the anti-abortion forces are winning, is if you start to tell something about the development of the fetus, the cell differentiation, the creation of organs, the sensation of pain, and all the rest of that stuff, then the analogy to the hair becomes weaker and weaker. And I think most women are actually going to be moved by all of this stuff. And I think you could correct me, Troy, if I'm wrong, that the rate of abortions now in the United States is actually trending downward rather than upward. And it may well be that the best way to deal with this thing is not to tamper with the law, uh, but to continue to have the moral debate with people and hope that you can win them over slowly and surely on that particular issue. So I've always been torn by all of this. Um, The arguments that I'm making uh, for overruling it are actually stronger than the ones that are John making it, because I'm saying, in effect, I'm not even sure it's a political question. What I am sure is that the traditional cabbages of the police power um, would cover this case. So it's quite distinct from a case like Lochner against New York, where the effort to find a police power justification on health and safety was quite shaky, uh, given the fact that there were so many difficulties with the particular statute and so much dispute about the amount of exposure that took place, given that these women, these men actually worked part of the time sleeping as part of their 10 hours, a complicated institutional arrangement, whereas I don't see the moral ambiguity on the other one. Richard, though, you are yes, much John, more friendly. You're much more friendly to stare decisis than I am, though, because I generally, when it comes to the Supreme Court and the Constitution, don't think they should really ever follow stare decisis. Uh, I'm not trying to, I'm not making a different argument. Yeah. I'm, no, no, I'm, I'm not just, friendly I'm saying, to start. How come you're Generally, I am. I mean, in this case, but, you know, I mean, if somebody talks to me, how is it? Um, Somebody says, well, this is like, whatchamacallit, like Plessy. I think the answer is it's wrong in terms of the historical sweep in both of those things. Plessy was not a bolt out of the blue. One of the things that was quite clearly happening in the United States as we ended Reconstruction in 1877 and the 20 years leading up to Plessy was that there was a constant tightening of the noose associated with putting in these racial restrictive rules. And one of the most frightening things to remember is that when Plessy came down, it was no big deal. Um, John Harlan was thought to be a little bit eccentric. In 1910, we formed the NAACP, and they decide that they're not going to do anything whatsoever to try to upset the Plessy precedent when Woodrow Wilson decided to resegregate the civil service when he took office in 1913. Um, And then it was a long process uh, by which you slowly chip away at the Plessy situation some of them were done on interstate commerce grounds, dormant commerce clause. Others were done on voting rules. Some were done on the fact that this is really not equal. And then you get Brown. What's so extraordinary about what, what, what some call the situation in Roe is it literally came from nowhere. Um, I can still recall I was teaching at the particular time, and one of my colleagues had conducted a moot court at the University of Texas in which they kind of debated this issue, and the story comes back. We spent so much time laughing about how ridiculous this particular case was that we couldn't even figure why the Supreme Court had taken it, um, which was the general attitude. 
So uh, it's a bolt from the blue. This is not part of a historical sweep. This is not even like Korematsu. And I think that adds to the illegitimacy of Roe and makes the case for overturning it being somewhat stronger. There's still the stare decisive situation uh, because there is a real division of opinion as to whether or not it's appropriate to do this by legislation. One of the things to remember about Plessy and to remember about Korematsu, these were legislative or administrative acts. These were not judicial activism that took place. And, you know, when Justice Roberts says, oh, my God, this is just like Lochner, does he really mean to say that if Lochner were done by statute, that is, you repeal the maximum hour law, it would be the same thing as a carting people away under uh, presidential orders or ordering state-sanctioned se- segregation? No. Lochner is a case in which it's only an institutional choice, but there's a real moral component to the condemnation This is my question, though, for you, is you generally, uh, okay. you more than me, generally are more sympathetic to stare decisis. And why does this right. case, why does Roe not get stare decisis? Is because it's just Roe is really wrong as a matter of the merits? Yeah, or? I mean, essentially okay. on so many ways. Okay. And so That's, many I levels. couldn't understand. I mean, yeah. I mean, look, as you said, I think, the, the, and remember, my position is famously or infamously on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I overrule it. On Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, I'm not quite sure whether I want to overrule it or tighten it or whatever. And on Sunday, I stop thinking about the problem because I need the day of rest. What <laughs> to me having watched this thing. <laughs> Richard is and that the, uh, How do you ever write any of those many, many law review articles you write? <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I do them on the Sabbath, right? No, I mean, uh, what you do is you watch the Supreme Court. They're not into all these hermeneutics and so forth. I think they basically think that it's a usurpation of power, and they're not going to stand for it anymore. And uh, what's so interesting about it is the press is lining up, and I think actually in some weird way the liberal press actually wants Roe to be overturned because then they have something to replace the somewhat tattered campaign. Well, if we don't do something now, we still have to deal with Donald Trump. This will give them a fresh cause to fight after. And I think they're really raring to go. I mean, I have no question, reading the way the papers are coming out, that they will treat this as one of the great scandals of all time because they just don't tolerate any moral ambiguity on any kind of issue. So um, if if I were a Democrat, I'm not sure which way I would be rooting on this particular thing. If I'm a Republican, I'm not sure which way I'd be rooting. Remember, there's a serious risk here that Republicans who are conservative on league, on economic issues and uh, more liberal on abortion-like issues may decide to leave the party over Roe v. Wade because my sense about most people is they care much more about Roe than they do about the minimum wage. They may be the odd exception or two, but I think that's the way in which the same goes. And so it could split the Republican Party. Okay, a couple of notes going back a few minutes because I was first of all, Richard, I was I was doing the fact checking you requested in real time, and you were correct about the abortion rate. This is from the Guttmacher Institute, which is pretty much the authoritative source on this. The number of abortions fell by nineteen percent from twenty eleven to twenty seventeen. The rate of abortions fell by twenty percent. Same period of time. Uh, the other thing I'll note, just an interesting sort of historical footnote here. You made the point, Richard, that Plessy versus Ferguson kind of regarded as a non-event at the time. Yeah. I was curious to find in writing my uh, now finished Grover Cleveland book, that decision comes down in 1896, which is yes, the right. last year of Cleveland's second term. Yeah. No reference to it. I could find no reference to it anywhere in his papers, which is probably partially a reflection of his, his feeling that it was uh, improper for a president to comment on Supreme Court cases. That would be in character, but still bizarre for something that was turned out to be that consequential, nowhere mentioned. The problem, um, the problem is also, your book is so boring. You can't find a mention his papers about anything interesting. No, no, no. He was a very interesting <laughs> guy on a lot number of issues. I, I think Good what's job, really Richard. hard for people <laughs> to understand is that segregation was regarded as legitimate in both the North and the South at the time that that decision came down. Um, the Northerners, in some cases, were prepared to jettison it, but, you know, take something like New Jersey, it didn't get rid of segregation rules until the 1940s. The real breakthrough on segregation in terms of even Northern states took place after the Second World War. Jackie Robinson, the various state rules getting rid of segregation in the schools, the decision by Harry Truman in July of 48 to integrate the military service and so forth on race after it had been segregated. It's really quite kind of appalling as to how comfortable people were with segregation under those circumstances and what an arduous fight it was to overcome it. Whereas the day Roe comes down, right, there's a firestorm of protests. It's completely different historiography. 
We should also mention briefly uh, the other abortion case, the Texas one that we've mentioned before. Um, now, of course, the issue there was really about who could be sued and a challenge to it because it created this unusual system where the abortion restrictions were essentially enforced through private suits, not through state action. And the court's decision here was essentially a procedural one that leaves some avenues to challenge this law open and closes others. It didn't resolve the underlying question about the law itself. And as one might expect, we have subsequently seen an announcement that California wants to try the same approach from the left. Gavin Newsom, the governor there, calling for a law that uses precisely the same kind of mechanism to go after people with, uh, for example, assault rifles. So, John, has this Texas law opened a Pandora's box, or should we expect that at a certain point the courts are just going to step in and, and shut this whole thing down? I think it's going to be the latter. I don't think that this is going to give rise to you know, red states, you know, passing similar laws against rights they don't like and blue states doing the same, uh, you know, California's law, I suppose, uh, you know, the ideas are going to, uh, uh, Gavin Newsom has proposed uh, because, you know, there's no other problems worth solving in California right now. He's got a lot of free time. <laughs> <laughs> he thought like, well, let's let people sue uh, civilly about, uh, I guess, magazines and assault rifles and so on. Eventually, I mean, this this case is really more of a technical technical issue about what counts as a case or controversy under the Constitution to be able to get your foot in the door of federal court. Uh, eventually, these cases will all be able to be heard. It's just a matter of suing the right uh, person at the right time. And so, all the Supreme Court cases says really, I think, is that um, what the Texas law does is that it makes clear that in order to sue uh, a state to stop it from infringing on your individual rights, you've got to wait until your rights actually been infringed. You can't engage in what's called pre-enforcement review, you know, reading the law, thinking your rights are going to be violated, and then suing uh, before anyone has come and tried to stop you. And I think, so I think in the long run, it's just as going to, this is, this case is going to be a minor, minor footnote to uh, the lar to this larger fight. I don't think it'll even really appear in any larger stories about abortion. When it comes to individual rights, I think this is it's gonna be a uh, dead end. But I'm sure California and New York and other states are gonna fool around with this for the next year or so, but I think it'll die out. Um, I'm not, I have a slightly different reaction. Uh, first of all, one of the things that this state has done is given rise to a series of comments. Uh, I think it was, again, Justice Sotomayor saying, you look at this state and you kind of think of nullification in the same sense that John Calhoun used it in the Senate when he was coming representing uh, South Carolina. That's clearly false. Uh, what uh, he meant was that you could have interposition of states to prevent a federal override of authority, uh, whereas in this particular case, as John says, it's the timing issue. If it turns out that somebody wants to bring an abortion or have it earlier, uh, anybody who's on either side of this case can raise all the constitutional issues. So it's a matter of timing. I think the real issue here in many ways is that this exposes the soft underbelly uh, associated with the modern law of standing. And this has been a beef I've had with the law since 1921, what, 1923, when I was unborn. And it starts off with the, the whole question having to do with Frothingham and Mellon, uh, where essentially they say taxpayer suits on the one hand and citizens and, and state suits, on the other hand, cannot be used as a vehicle to challenge federal laws on constitutional ground, even those which may turn out to be obviously unconstitutional, as the Maternity Act probably was under the law of that time. The position that I've always taken is if you look at the Constitution, it says uh, disputes in law and equity and pre-enforcement and injunctive relief in an equitable situation are governed by entirely different rules from those which are used on the legal side where you have to show a direct physical injury or something of the sort in order to maintain it. So I've said for many, many years, at least 20 in print and probably longer, uh, that what you want to do is if there's going to be a challenge of the constitutionality of a law, which does not involve fact-intense interpretation, better to get that thing solved sooner rather than later so this thing doesn't hang over and create this kind of limbo. And to me, what's really clear about this case is that there's not the slightest inclination on the part of the Supreme Court to rethink the standing doctrine in the way that I've talked about. Everybody worked within the current framework. And I think what the case shows is it's a real danger. And 
What's going to happen is maybe John is right. You do this with respect to guns or minimum wage laws or with everything else. And now instead a private person who has this sort of generalized vigilante power to do, which I'm opposed to having, even though I certainly don't like the road route. Um, I think they're going to have to actually rethink the question as to whether or not equitable relief by way of a preliminary injunction or even a final order is appropriate if it turns out that the actions that are contemplated are ultra-virus the state. And I'm in favor of doing that. I see no reason to let this thing hang fire. And there are cases after cases where you have major miscarriages in the public situation where the government disposes benefits and there's nobody who suffers a political harm. So actions that are illegal simply replace, uh, escape any kind of review so that Frothingham and Mellon, with respect to the distribution of government benefits, can be regarded as a partial repeal of Marbury against Madison. So I'm, I'm quite unhappy about this, but I have come to the conclusion that the current Supreme Court, for all of its adventurism, is on matters like that not going to do a single thing. And why is that? Because the modern champion of the traditional standing rules is none other than Justice Nino Scalia, and given where he stood, it's not likely that people like Amy Barrett, who clerked for him, are going to take a strong position on the other side. Okay, speaking of guns, uh, the abortion case has somewhat overshadowed the fact that the court recently had oral arguments in this gun control case out of New York. And that suit stems from the fact that New York has a law, and several other blue states have laws like it, that condition concealed carry of a firearm on a permit that can only be obtained if you can show that you have some special need for personal protection. A generalized desire for self-defense isn't going to do it. Now, uh, Richard, Chief Justice Roberts seemed in oral arguments like the conservative justice who was the least inclined to do a total overhaul of the system. But, but even he was pretty skeptical of New York here. And he said at one point, this is the quote, uh, it would be surprising to have it, it being the, the constitutional right here, depend on a permit system. You can say that the right is limited in a particular way, just as First Amendment rights are limited, but the idea that you need a license to exercise the right, I think, is unusual in the context of the Bill of Rights, close quote. The, the right they're talking about here is, of course, the bare arms part of the Second Amendment. So, Richard, our longtime listeners may know that you've taken a somewhat heterodox, at least amongst people on the right, position on the, the Second Amendment. Uh, does this Roberts argument cut ice with you? Um, yes, it does. Look, I mean, the question is where, if all ever, did they go wrong? The objection that I have is detaching the first part of the Second Amendment from the second part. And the first part saying, you know, uh, a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. What Justice Scalia did in the Heller case was to treat that as surpluses, as precatory, rather than treating this as though it were um, an essential federalism procedure, where what you were doing is passing this amendment to make sure that the federal government could not infringe on the rights of people to keep and bear arms in the states, so that the states could organize their militias, which at the time were independent bodies, which I think is a direct interpretation. But here, well, we've passed all of that, and now the question is, what's the level of scrutiny? You can still use a permit system. I don't think Justice, writes, Justice Roberts is right about that. But the question is, what do you have to show in order to give it to deny a permit? This is a case of intermediate scrutiny, and I am aware of no cases of intermediate scrutiny where what happens is somebody has to beg and plead this government to explain why it is that they need a permit. Uh, the correct way in which to approach this thing has been the opposite side. You have to give, as you are the state, some reason why it is that this person should not be allowed to have a permit, which means that you have to prove a prior criminal record of mental instability or youth, whatever it is that you want. And that's not what's going on here. And so I think, in effect, that the substantive standard is just completely wrong uh, for using a permit. Uh, we have all sorts of things with zoning laws that require permits, environmental statutes require permits. The objection there isn't to the permit. The objection is to the fact that the permit requirements are essentially done on a rational basis test, so it puts the burden in the wrong direction. The burden should always be on the government when it wants to restrict the liberty. It should never be on the individual to explain why it is when it exercises the liberty, it's not doing any harm to anybody else. Uh, there can be variations off of that, but that's the first line of the distinction. So I think this statute is, is doomed 
because it doesn't fall within the parameters of intermediate scrutiny. And I think it's perfectly clear if you look at the motivation, uh, what's going to happen is the Supreme Court is going to say, oh, they passed this statute in order to evade the requirements of Heller and McDonald, and we're just not going to stand for it. So forget about my grievances. They're no longer in the picture. Uh, what really matters is the level of police power scrutiny that's given, and this thing falls far short of what it would be required to do. So I think this statute's going to fall. The liberals, I think, will sustain it. But I look at this one going down 6-3, uh, leaving it open to New York State to contrive something else that's a little bit less transparent to see if it can control the problem. That's what I think is going to happen. John, on, on the other side of the equation, a number of the conservative justices brought up public venues where you might want to restrict people's ability to carry firearms. This case deals with New York. So they were talking about Yankee Stadium, Times Square on New Year's. Um, Justice Kagan at another point mentioned the restrictions that are in place in most states that keep the mentally ill from having firearms. And what's interesting about this is that at one point, Justice Kavanaugh asked Paul Clement, who was representing the challenge to this law, if he'd be satisfied with the the shall issue standard, where basically you get the concealed carry permit automatically unless you fail to meet some pretty basic standards. And, and this, by the way, is the standard pretty much everywhere in the U.S. except for the more urban states of the Northeast yeah. and California and Hawaii. But here's my question for you, John, ricocheting off the one from Richard earlier. That's still a permit-based system. It's a relatively permissive one, but it's still permit-based. So how do we square that with the protection in the Bill of Rights? You know, Richard's undeniably right, and I agree with him that the presumption in the Second Amendment area to regulation is the opposite of what a <clears throat> you know the purpose of the Bill of Rights were, which was to just uh, recognize pre-existing natural rights, and the government would have to show a need to take it away. But in the absence of government action, you were just assumed to have them. Now, the thing about uh, guns is a little different. I mean, I think there are, as Richard just recognized, there are uh, license requirements and permit requirements to things which he and I would agree are also natural rights, like the right to build on your own property. I was always, why should you have to get the permission of the government to build on your own property? But you're, you know, in a lot of the United States, you're not allowed to unless you get a permit first from the government. So it it seems to me that we do have a system where certain kind of rights because, and here's the fancy term, because of the possible negative externalities that they impose on people around them when you exercise your right, uh, that uh, we do have this system where we don't have just uh, unlimited liberty and then the government proves and taking away. So here's um, other examples. I mean, car driving a car is another. There's a lot of things that we do where we have to get the permission of the government first. Um, the real question, I think, is not about whether you need to get the permit first or whether the government has to show its interest to take it away, but just what the standard is. Because if you live in a state where intermediate scrutiny is applied in a more generous fashion, or the state itself already has a very generous policy, I don't think it really matters then all that much. <clears throat> I mean, I mean, I um, I think I said I told a story a few, uh, on the podcast before a long time ago. I went to uh, see what it was like to go buy a, a gun here in California, and so yes, there is a test that you take, but you know, so you go to the gun store and you take this test. It's on a memo pad. And it's like 10 questions, multiple choice. And then the guy scores it right there. And I think if you don't pass, they just rip that test off the top of the memo pad. And then you give you back the memo pad again to take the test again. And the same questions are there in the same order with the same answers. So is it really? (laughs) Well, I was cheating, so I got a perfect score. Because, you know, being Asian, I was going to get 100% on the gun test. If you pass, the system is broken. (laughs) And so it's, you know, it seems to be like you could have a, a testing system that's just so lenient that it's not really interfering with your individual rights. The problem with the New York statute and the California law is that you have to show some kind of threat to your life in order to have a, the standard is set such that it, the standard itself is a violation of your Second Amendment right because your right to have a gun is not contingent on there actually being a real threat right now against your life. I mean, if that were true, Troy Troy would be allowed to have guns in the airport, for example. (laughs) John, let me, let let me ask you a purely practical question as as someone who's clerked at the, as someone who's clerked at the court, if you got big rightward swings on abortion and guns 
from the Supreme Court within the space of a couple of weeks in June. You can imagine what the the reaction would be. So do the justices ever think about these cases in relationship to each other? In other words, is there ever a calculation that, oh, we're going to make big waves on this hot button issue, so maybe we should move a bit slower on that one? I I hate to say it, but I think Chief Justice Roberts thinks that way. Uh, I, I mean, I think he, uh, I mean, according not. to accounts you read in the press, uh, you know, that's what he thought about when he switched his vote, allegedly, in the Obamacare in case. In yeah, he originally yeah, was the fifth vote to throw out all of Obamacare, and he switched his vote, so he only threw out 75% of Obamacare, so that one part of it still survived and proceeded to screw up our health insurance markets forever after. But that's that's the way he thinks, uh, unfortunately. The thing that's... Uh, uh, interesting. I don't think he'll do it this time. I don't know. I mean, I think he. I could totally see him though saying that yes, the if we if we go out and toss out New York and California's gun laws, I could see him going to Justice Kavanaugh saying maybe we should proceed a little more slowly on abortion. And what about my compromise that we uphold the Mississippi law and we say states are have some right yeah. freedom to regulate abortion up to fifteen weeks? Because what's wrong with fifteen weeks instead of twenty four weeks? What's the big deal? That's basically his. Look, he argument. might do that. Yeah, I, I could easily see Kavanaugh. He's not going to go the other way. I could see him trying to say we will strike down the Second Amendment in the Second Amendment case. So let's proceed slowly on abortion, and he's really trying to put a lot of pressure on the two newest justices, you know, Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett, to go slower on abortion. I don't look. I think there are two ways to answer your question. One is I don't think he will try to do anything to stop the overturning of the New York law because it's so far out of things. And all you do is you return yourself back to the status quo ante. Uh, in the situation with Roe, you're changing the status quo ante. So he may try to do that. Uh, but my own view is having watched the way these other justices seems to have worked, uh, their passion about this is a matter of a serious constitutional breach, I think really makes it unlikely that they will be swayed by that. I mean, you know, you read people like Ed Well and talk to you know, our friend Adam White and so forth. When they talk about this case, they don't sound like me at all, right? Uh, they sound like somebody who regards <laughs> this as original sin in the deepest sense, and they just can't see how you compromise on original sin. And, you know, it's not as though I'm going to say to them they're crazy. When I wrote the decision back in 19, my opinion, article on back in 1973, I was very much of the same mind, and as far as an originalist interpretation is concerned, still am. Uh, the real question is, stare decisis, prescriptive easements, or one thing or another. Uh, and on that, they have, you know, sort of the Thomas view. This stuff really doesn't matter when the stakes are high, like John. So I just don't think they're going to move. And I do think there's a danger that will happen is uh, Justice Roberts will try to do this maneuvering. He won't pick up anybody on the left and he'll lose five people on the right. And so you have the odd situation where the chief judges is the most irrelevant judge on the United States Supreme Court in these high volume, high pressure issues. I think that's a serious risk he runs by by trying to do what uh, you suggested. Okay, a couple other things that I've wanted to get you guys to react to on the the back end of the show here. Uh, Richard, this first one is an Epstein special. Ah. Since since last we convened, there have been rulings uh, from both the Oklahoma Supreme Court and a trial judge in California rejecting these sweeping lawsuits against opioid manufacturers, which were seeking to find them liable for the opioid crisis, but on the grounds that they had created a public nuisance So now, according to the New York Times, there are some 3,000 lawsuits against the drug makers that depend on this theory. So this could prove to be a real house of cards. So, Richard, our listeners may not be intimately familiar with the legal standards around a public nuisance. Can you explain how it works and why it seems to be failing as a means to get at these drug makers? Well, first of all, let me make a disclosure. Uh, Myself and my friend Mario Loyola actually wrote a brief in the Oklahoma case explaining why this thing absolutely was bizarre beyond it. Um, It turns out, even if you start looking at the medical side of this thing, the uh, common response that we have now is you're worried about opioids. You should be worried about fentanyl, which is much more deadly. And there's also, I think, a 
fairly large consensus that you cannot hold the drug companies responsible uh, for the opioids or the fentanyl, which are self-manufactured by other people, and have never gone through the system. If you looked at what the case said in Oklahoma, it was simply ghoulish. They allowed the individual cases to go forward on very dicey theories against individual manufacturers by people who subject wrong. And then what they said is on top of this, we have a very large number in the billions somewhere to take care of the public harms. And you're going to have to pay essentially for our drug rehabilitation program for everybody. And if you basically did what they did in Alabama, rather in Oklahoma, and try to run it nationally, you take up a very large fraction of the gross national product, national product, gross domestic product to get this thing done. And it's just crazy. A public nuisance to understand it historically arose, and we have to go back. Uh, the great case in, in, in American law, actually, is a 1536 English decision in which it turned out you had a public nuisance in the form that somebody blocked the public right of way. And what the court have said at the time is that if you were just a member of the public who's been inconvenienced by slowing down, you don't get anything. Uh, there's going to be a fine that's going to be placed on the fellow. But if you suffer a special injury, and then under these circumstances, what happens is you can get your damages. But when they talked about a public nuisance, they actually meant the same thing on the public side that it would be on a private side. So that the nuisance would require that you show that there'd be some unreasonable harm of one kind or another of the usual sort, that you throw noise at somebody, of pollution, uh, all sorts of air kinds of things, uh, so that they're really physical interruptions with the quiet peace and enjoyment that somebody had. And there's nothing whatsoever that these manufacturers did that remotely qualifies like that. All the sales that they made, for the most part, were legal. And in fact, if there was any serious difficulties in this case based upon overpromotion, much of that depends upon distributors rather than upon the manufacturers. And so the individual suits for misrepresentation, product liability, are very hard to win in most of these cases. But those are the only avenues that should be open to you. And you can say that uh, public nuisance is defined as a bad product liability suit or a bad misrepresentation suit where there's been no reliance of any sort on what's going to happen. Uh, when I read the lower court Alabama opinion, I, I don't know what they were smoking, I thought to myself. I said, look, stranger things have happened, uh, but if this thing is replicated throughout the country, it will be such a massive dislocation that you will see entire institutions and major firms start to fail with these multi-billion dollar liabilities so that I was at least mildly optimistic that given that the fact that the law was clearly in the opposite direction, this would stop. And my guess is that when people come to their senses, they will realize that the public health issue should be solved by general tax revenues and distributed in the usual way and that the individual shoots should require at the very least a proof that you use the drug that was manufactured by some and that the warnings were improper in some particular form and that you did not know what you were doing. And when somebody wants to bring a suit, having gotten a tablet, and in order to make the stuff really poisonous, you have to grind it down and concentrate it and then take it in some very strange way. This is not the product in its original position. And so the combination of assumption of risk and product misuse should be absolute defenses in these cases. So, I mean, there is a great public health tragedy here, uh, but in many ways, it's not the one that you're talking about of manufacturer greed and there's still the other problem is that for certain kinds of conditions if you don't use oxycontin or something like that people with great pain will not get any form of relief there are no close substitutes so not only are you going to drive people out of business for bogus claims but people who have legitimate access are going to find themselves really in very dire straits because important medications are not going to be available to them. There are legislative situations that you could put into the place at the state level, the federal level. You can have requirements on how you distribute these drugs. You don't sell them over the counter. You've got to come into the hospital and have the administrator put it in themselves. Lots of things that you can start to do to handle this problem. But public nuisance is a plaintiff's bonanza, uh, but it's a really terrible remedy for everybody else in a civilized society. John, I'll start with you on this one. This story has kind of fallen off the front pages in recent weeks, but I want to get your take on it. There was this big <clears throat> controversy about the Biden administration potentially making payments of up to $450,000 per person for illegal immigrants who endured family separation at the border 
under the zero tolerance policy. And there was this cute little dance where Biden first dismissed this as nonsense, said he wasn't going to do it. And then his press shop had to come in and sweep up and say, well, what he meant was he wasn't necessarily necessarily going to pay $450,000. So here, per person. So here are the contours of this. The, The ACLU is bringing this class action suit on behalf of these families. The Biden administration is eyeing a settlement. So on one side, you've got people, mostly conservatives, saying, look, the federal government was enforcing the law. We can't make payouts for this. We're not going to be liable for this. And this is an incredibly perverse incentive to make illegal immigrants rich for attempting to break the law. On the other hand, you've got people, mostly progressives, but also some libertarians, saying, no, you know what? This was inhumane. There were children who were traumatized by being separated from their parents. There was irreparable damage done. Uh, And the ACLU is telling there were constitutional violations. They said Fourth Amendment was unreasonable seizure of children. Fifth Amendment, because they have a right to family integrity and a right to health care and equal equal protection because this was discriminatory. John, what's your read on all of this? This is actually a really difficult uh, question. The problem, I think, with these payouts is that it's not clear to me that what happened was illegal under federal law. Uh, if you're really going to pay almost half a million dollars per violation, I think you'd want at least like a court of appeals or even the Supreme Court to figure out whether there really was a constitutional violation of that magnitude. Some of these arguments that the ACLU is throwing out there are um, speculative, it seems to me. Uh, Regardless of how you come out on the policies of it, for example, there are Supreme Court cases that say uh, aliens don't have certain constitutional rights when they're trying to enter the country, uh, which kind of makes sense, right? Because if how could everyone who outside the United States who wants to cross into the border have rights outside the United States? It just doesn't make any sense. And the Supreme Court has said so. Mm-hmm. You know, I was not I, I was not a supporter of these immigration policies from the Trump administration about uh, splitting up families and so on. Although there's arguments that this is something the United States has done before. But under Obama. Yeah, and under the under Obama administration. And they're using the same facilities, in fact. I mean, there's photographs of this. The problem is like when the, – the, the reason I say it's a difficult question is, you know, the question is really one about how do you um, remedy constitutional violations by the government. And so the usual course of action is that you get an injunction that orders the government to stop and because of a doctrine called sovereign immunity, usually the federal government does not have, nor the states actually in many cases, don't have to pay money uh, to make up for violations. The main remedy is to stop doing the illegal action. And the purpose is that you don't want the government to get bankrupted over policy choices that were made in good faith based on the laws it was. And so it seems to me that if the Biden administration is doing this because they think they're legally compelled to. I'm not sure the law forces them to. And that means they're really doing it because they think this is a good idea. They're doing it as a matter of their discretion. Uh, And if that's the case, they should honestly up and say that. And I bet Congress and a lot of the American people would be against making payouts of that magnitude uh, as a matter of discretion. I mean, the other question is, how far do you go? I mean, the Obama situation is a shambles relative even to the Trump situation because he never made it very clear that people who came into the United States were illegal and that they could be limited. And so there was always the hope that if you got people across that they would be able to stay under some kind of refugee exception. Uh, There were many instances of children being let go by their parents and being carried across the border on the grounds that if they were alone, they would be even a greater target for sympathy and for some kind of protection. Uh, There was the refusal of Biden early on to deal with the situation where you wanted to have American facilities in Mexico to pre-sort these cases without bringing them into the United States. I think he's eventually relented on that. Uh, but he's faced a very serious problem that he's butchered everything up that he's touched with. And now this is just another situation in which he's paid them out and is going to only do it for people who were abused by Trump or is going to do it for people whose own administration has happened to do it. I mean, I think that immigration is one of the great tragedies of modern time. I, I don't see how it is that we can really 
really solve this problem. Open borders is not going to do it, given what has happened to Texas and is going to continue to happen. I think what you have to do is to keep a relatively tough situation to keep people away from the borders. And then my view is what you should do in light of the terrible situation elsewhere is to have a combination of programs. You come down very hard on other governments that have gangs and also try to set up extensive aid facilities by the United States so that we can help other people in other locations um, uh, in ways that make this thing a little bit better. That I'm quite prepared to spend a lot of American money in order to try to ease the situation for people south of the border. What I'm not prepared to do is to sort of open this situation up so that essentially there's going to be a transition game so that people from Haiti will go through Mexico to try to come to the American border. If we really do this, it's not a question like it was in 1904, people coming on a boat and getting to the United States. There'll be third-party agents, say the Chinese government, which will subsidize people coming to the American border in order to overwhelm our system. And, And we can't can't really tolerate that. So trying to get a way through this is really terrible. Um, I keep reminding people, it's true both John and me, we are both children of immigrants. I'm a grandchild of immigrants. And John, I assume your parents came over here at some level. So it's not as though you're looking at two people who think that America is only for people who came over here before 1900. Oh, I'm an, I'm an immigrant, but I'm glad that once the country decides to give you citizenship, it can't change its mind. Well, it, it don't, <laughs> put anything past well, yeah, John, John wouldn't have anywhere to go we already know he's prohibited from entering into Russia uh, <laughs> really John oh yeah John, I didn't realize oh, yeah. that you, you had that Russia. oh that's because of Mr. P- you abandoned Putin Russia Putin hates person. me Putin hates me I told I told the favorite Richard story earlier. So I tell favorite John one now, which was John. Listeners may remember this because I think he said it on the air. But I think to this day, John, you are still upset, right? That you could never actually get a printed version of the order to keep you out of Russia that you could put on your wall. Yeah, this being Russia, there's actually, as far as I can tell, no printed executive order with my name on it. I actually had a Russian student try to find a copy. I still my challenge uh, to Putin to engage in judo uh, judo matches still outstanding and unanswered. <laughs> So, well, John, um, he's shorter than you. <laughs> but so, he wrestles alligators barehanded. Does he really? No. So, but if maybe he'll be, maybe be lucky enough to lose. <laughs> All right. Sp- speaking of authoritarian figures, as we wrap up, uh, my final question for you guys. So, holiday edition of the show. We all remember uh, Miracle on 34th Street. Chris Kringle has to go before a judge, prove he's not crazy. He's he's Santa. So most important topic of the day. I've learned that this is a popular topic amongst a certain stripe of legal writer. If Santa was real, how many crimes would he be committing in the course of ordinary business? Sexual harassment would surely be one. I'm sorry? How did that jump to the front of the list? Well, because he'd have children on his lap. (laughs) What about the elves? Yeah. Enslave the elves. And the Fair Labor Standard Act. Yeah. Right? Animal cruelty so, with the reindeer. So there you go. So you guys are playing deep cuts from the start. The ones I most frequently see cited are uh, home invasion, trespass, burglary, uh, unlawful surveillance. Oh, oh, you're talking about Santa coming down the chimney as opposed to Santa. I'm talking about the, the whole kit and oh, I thought you were talking no, about the Miracle on 34th Street, right? Yeah. In which it, you don't have trespass, you don't have any of it, right? No, no, no. Santa, our Santa the Santa that we know, the Santa on the Coke can. Well, I think he's. Uh, you can he's try that. But the interesting thing is, no, no, he has an implied license yeah. to come and leave present. Um, I think the real question is whether or not he could sue somebody for a sooty chimney if they mess up his red suit. <laughs> See, when it happens, Troy, you're not being dynamic enough. You got to go both ways, Troy. It's got to go both ways, right? That outfit is a crime. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> that's right. I mean, yeah, there may be some dress code that's going to be involved in this kind of a situation. Um, basically, working after hours, a Fair Labor Standards Act, you know, you're not allowed to work overtime. And if Santa's going from chimney to chimney over a long period of time, he may violate the the Fair Labor Standards Act, which oh, has yeah. been upheld. Oh, right? sure. And has he been vaccinated? Has he been vaccinated? Have all the elves been vaccinated? I uh, Santa been vaccinated. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to imagine there are airspace airspace violations as well, I would think. Well, that's an interesting question. How did he get here, right? Um, And I think the answer is there's no airspace violation in the upper airspace, but there is in the lower airspace, right? Uh, And the question is, by the way, if there's how many Santas are there, Mr. Senate? I don't know the answer to that question, but I'm wondering, Richard, let let, let the non— 
Let the non-lawyer try out a novel legal theory here. Could we say that Santa had implicit permission to use the airspace because NORAD tracks him, publicly tracks him, and does nothing? No, because that would be true of a lot of other people. Is NORAD doing it for the purposes of one day taking him out? Um, I don't think they're doing that. I think they're keeping him under active surveillance in case he commits some <laughs> heinous act when he gets into somebody's chimney. Look, look <laughs> the real crime is that he's a representation of white supremacy. Right? He's got a list, naughty and nice, and he's white, very, very white. His beard is white. His hair is white. I mean, come on. That's the There's real crime There's a man from here. the 21st century. <laughs> well, by John, the way, I, man I, of the future. I, I, John, I think that's actually now incorrect. I think Santa's become diverse. The and question the, is, are there any are there any women Santas? No, there's Mrs. Claus. There's no women Santas. There's Mrs. Claus. See, well, that's but more patriarchy. We we but do Mrs. Is, Claus can, yeah, Mrs. Claus consistently kept in a in a subservient role. Yeah, Doesn't seem to be doing bad. anything other than making cookies and, and serving hot beverages. Mrs. Claus, slave to the patriarchy. Of course, that Ooh. goes without saying. Yeah, and oh, those elves. I, I, think, I, I, I think you know what? I think this conversation has gone long. <laughs> yeah, that's going to have to do it for this installment and for this <laughs> year of Law Talk. So my thanks, as always, to you both, to our producer, Scott Emmergut, and to all our wonderful listeners. Remember to do us a favor and rank the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, everyone. We will be back with you in 2022, which will mark the beginning of the 12th year we've been doing this show. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. And to all a good night. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.